Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. This is David Metzner. Welcome to ACG Analytics Weekly Macro Call. A lot going on in the world from Europe to Latin America to Washington, D.C., with the infrastructure rumored to be upon us. With that very short introduction, I'd like to turn it over to Chris Sierwinski. Thanks, David. Yeah, there's, there's, as always, a lot to talk about. Infrastructure in D.C., because there has been some movement there with a, you know, potential proposal from the Biden administration. So in, in, in D.C., John, I'm very interested to see where we're going. I feel like there's a lot of ambiguity and a lack of details. You're going to, I'm sure, answer that's because there's no concrete proposal out there yet. But, you know, with what we know now, what are you expecting as far as, you know, split packages, one potentially containing hard infrastructure, it roads, bridges, some tax changes as pay-fors, and then some of these other, you know, universal pre-K and, and other, you know, non-direct infrastructure investments in a separate package. Are, are you expecting it to be bifurcated like that? Well, I, I believe that what's going to happen is the administration is going to start out with one set of procedural parameters and that they're not going to work out. And then at that point, the administration and, and Democrats in Congress are going to reconvene and move to a reconciliation bill. I will tell you that, you know, there is a bipartisan bill to be had. It's one which concentrates on, quote, unquote, traditional infrastructure. And by that, I mean roads and bridges and airports, wastewater treatment. But it would also include a lot of Democratic priorities. It certainly wouldn't be a bill that Republicans would draft on their own. I do believe there are enough votes there to pass something like that, but it depends on how you pay for it. And what Democrats are looking for are wholesale tax increases and changes to the 2017 signature Republican tax reform law. That's going to make it very difficult to get Republicans on board. There are not a whole lot of other ideas for bringing significant revenue to the table. And frankly, I would feel, and some other Republicans have said as much over the last few days, I'd feel a little bit used if you came up with a bill that so that you could burnish your bipartisan credentials, but I knew that the next bill was going to just run over the minority party yeah. and, and do all the things that have no bipartisan support. And so I, I feel like I was being whitewashing the whole affair, so to speak. It's definitely a dynamic that we're going to have to watch. As far as traditional infrastructure goes, you know, what is the price tag that could be associated with the first bill in terms of the sheer spend before we go into some of these revenue raisers? I think you could probably have about a trillion dollars. I'm not sure you would have to pay for all of it, but you'd have to make a good effort to pay for much of it. But the administration has taken one of the best revenue raisers off the table, although it's not a long-term revenue raiser, but the gas tax indexing it to inflation somehow. Of course, gas prices are going up. That really should have been done when President Trump was in charge, but he would never get behind any single revenue stream. And so he couldn't lead the Republican Party, which is generally loath to pass tax cuts, but it probably could have been done while or in tandem with lowering taxes in the 2017 bill. So it's going to be really tough. That doesn't mean that there are not things in there that Republicans would like um, or would otherwise support. But I think what's going to happen is that's going to be much of the discussion for April 
it will become clear that there's no real path. And at that point, Democrats are going to have to decide what type of reconciliation bill they want and how big it's going to be. This $3 trillion number that's being thrown around is a rather large number, but I think it hides how much spending is really being talked about because there are still people trying to throw their proposals in. Some of the different things that that Democrats would like to do, for instance, making the new uh, enhanced child tax credit and earned income tax credit permanent, I don't really believe are reflected in that $3 trillion cost. And They could add another half trillion to a trillion dollars of spending. So I think they ask may have to be pared down because you do have, forgetting Republicans for a minute, you have a lot of centrist Democrats who are themselves getting a little bit trepidatious about deficit finance spending. And you have other Democrats who would support a lot of the revenue raisers which, you know, in terms of taxing corporations, taxing wealthier individuals, maybe not as much as the progressive wing, but they don't believe that this economic climate is necessarily the right time to do it. So they'd want to phase in those changes. And once you phase in the changes, you're lowering the amount that's offset and you're increasing the amount that's deficit spending. So what you're saying is that there's going to be an effort to go bipartisan. It's not going to work. They're going to move to reconciliation. The bill is going to blow out. It could exceed you know, spending expectations and potentially some of the revenue raisers could be lower than expected. When we talk about the revenue raisers, you know, you, you mentioned a couple different tax provisions. You know, the ones that at least have been raised publicly right now are raising the corporate rates, 28, decreasing the you know, top income bracket to 400K as opposed to 500, and then raising that top rate to 39.6 from 37. And, uh, you know, th- those are really concrete things that I've seen as likely to be incorporated into the proposal. Are you expecting capital gains increases or anything related to SALT? Well, I, I, I know there will be a legislative effort to do it. It is a priority of a lot of members of the Democratic leadership as well as the wider party to make capital gains tax changes. Some, the idea that has the most currency and that President Biden seemed to support on the campaign trail is to say that if you had a million dollars income in a year, that at that point, everything above that should be taxed as ordinary income, even if it would otherwise be subject to the capital gains tax. That has its own problems. If you are someone who makes $30,000 a year, but you sell your business that you spent 30 years constructing and you sell it for, you know, $3 million or something, that would be an atypical tax year. How you deal with that is a problem as old as the capital gains discussion itself, which is about 100 years old. I also believe that there, there are going to be estate tax changes. Those can get very complicated and that they present problems to a lot of farm state or rural Democrats because of what happens to family farms. But there are other Democrats who care about that in terms of what happens to family businesses. So how you structure that is complicated. And then there's a whole sort of ill-defined bucket of what I'm calling repatriation incentives, which could also be penalties. Senate Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden is going to be working on a number of them, but his proposals will not be the only ones. Conceivably, making sure that money is brought back on shore that it, you know, helps job creation or investment in this country would be ways that Republicans might consider tinkering with the 2017 tax reform law. But I suspect that the proposals are going to go far beyond what Republicans can support. But it's not clear yet exactly what they will be. Yeah. So what about, you know, non-tax revenue raisers like prescription drug pricing reform? Well, so... There, you know, one way to finance more traditional infrastructure spending 
would be to take something like uh, Speaker Pelosi's plan that the House passed last year, and which would allow Medicare to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies for the Medicare Part D prescription drug benefit. That's something that Democrats have wanted ever since that the Medicare Part D program was passed under George W. Bush. That could maybe bring in about half a trillion dollars a year, but I don't know how well it will be received because you have so few votes to spare. She had more votes to spare when it passed Congress last year, and it was more of a campaign issue. Now it would actually come to fruition. You had a much more modest proposal that was bipartisan in the Senate last year by then Senate Finance Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley, who partnered with the current chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, Ron Wyden. That was only slated to bring in around a hundred billion dollars over 10 years, so far less than the Speaker Pelosi's proposal. You had Democrats in the Senate who voted against that. And so will they feel that they have to vote for it now if it's part of a larger package and it's an administration priority? Maybe, but those are going to be tough discussions. What appears clear from statements from Speaker Pelosi and other Democrats is that bringing that revenue to the table would not be used to offset traditional infrastructure spending. It would be plowed back into the health care system to expand Obamacare subsidies or Medicaid expansion or, or other health care needs. And so it's really not going to pay down anything outside of expanded health care benefits. And you've talked about this other bucket of, of potential, you know, measures that aren't traditional infrastructure, including universal pre-K, pre-community college, those types of provisions. How do those fit into a potential reconciliation bill? Can they be made to fit into the reconciliation rules? They can. So we saw when uh, Congress passed Obamacare, you know, a decade ago, the Medicaid expansion. And the way that worked is the federal government said, we are going to put the money up front for states. They're going to have either have a very small match or a zero match for 10 years. So that has a budgetary impact over the window. What happens, though, is then at the end of that 10-year period, states are left picking up the tab. So that's why all states did not go ahead with Medicaid expansion, but many did, in part because they, they were suffering an economic downturn. We don't have the same economic realities, despite the money that just went out under the latest pandemic bill. It appears that most states have revenues for 2020, roughly commensurate with where they were in 2019. So I don't know if all states are going to want to take that plunge, but it would be money from the federal government, and so many would, and certainly a lot of blue states would, and it would probably fit under reconciliation rules just like the Medicaid expansion. Mm -hmm. And I forgot to answer your question about the SALT tax deduction. So I, I suspect there are members who wanted it repealed before it was even enacted. That was a tough fight during the 2017 tax reform plan. Last year, the last Congress, I should say, the House passed a measure to lift the deduction and also put a lifting of the deduction in two different pandemic relief measures. But that language was dropped before anything was ever signed into law. It's very expensive. And so you're, ta you're already talking about a bill that's giving people heartburn, but it is a priority for many members. On Tuesday, the House Ways and Means Committee had what you know, they call like a members' day hearing. Member after member 
on the Democratic side, Republicans largely boycotted the hearing, said that they really want this next bill to address the SALT deduction. What I suspect would happen is instead of a repeal, there would be a lifting of the cap for a year, two years, some, you know, limited amount of time in the hopes that people can fight it another day. Of course, it does expire under the 2017 bill. I believe it expires in 2026, but putting all the cost on this bill may be just too much. You know, with everything that you just said, it indicates to me, despite, you know, pandemic relief flying through Congress, like, pretty quickly through reconciliation, seems to me like a lot of this could get bogged down easily. So, you know, what's your timing expectation here? Is it Q3, Q4? Well, I'm penciling Q3, but if you listen to the statements of a lot of members of Congress and the administration, we have two transportation and infrastructure committees, one on the House side, one on the Senate side, chairmen who are saying that they want to report their titles by the end of April, but we don't even have reconciliation instructions, and I don't know that we'll get them by the end of April, so it seems a bit premature. You have people in Congress and the administration saying they'd like the bill to pass by Memorial Day. You have the Chamber of Commerce, that they, the Chamber of Commerce was only talking about a more traditional infrastructure bill, saying let's get it done by July 4th. I think you're going to run into so many issues within the Democratic caucus in the House and the Senate that it's going to probably be at least a Q3 affair. It could take longer. I was there when we were all debating Obamacare and you had people saying we're going to pass it in 100 days. It took about a year and a half. But but there's a lot of reluctance on the part of Democrats to let things drag out that long because A, anything could happen to the Senate majority. B, people really want it done by Q4. I mean, when, when Congress was dealing with Obamacare, they had between 59 and 60 Senate votes, depending on what month or months you were talking about during that whole legislative battle. That is not the case here. And people are already looking towards the midterms. So there's going to be a lot of pressure to get this done. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.